Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered, the Shadi Nabhan podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. And I am very interested in healthy civil debates, no matter what the topic is, as long as the goal of the debate is to reach an answer, and as long as the beneficiaries of this answer are our ultimate stakeholders, which are patients and people at large. And in that spirit, I have actually, uh, I am hosting uh, a podcast today uh, with really the idea of bringing few issues pertaining to myeloma to the table. Uh, there has been a lot on multiple myeloma on social media and on Twitter, and I just think Twitter is never the right format to have a discussion and a dialogue about important debates and important topics. So I wanted to host a new uh, myeloma roundtable with the idea that this roundtable is going to address questions that are very important to patients with multiple myeloma as well as to trialists that are talking about multiple myeloma. So I have invited um, uh, Dr. Vincent Rajkumar from the Mayo Clinic. Again, he is a a frequent guest on the show. And I taped with Vincent several weeks ago, a podcast about clinical trials. And in the spirit of that podcast came a lot of discussion about how do we really um, design clinical trials as things are moving uh, fast and especially in the field of multiple myeloma. So with that debate, I've invited Dr. Mani Mohideen from the Huntsman Cancer Institute uh, Mani has never been on this show before. I'm very delighted to have him on Healthcare Unfiltered. And he really brings a lot of fresh ideas and fresh opinions. And I followed Mani on social media. He has very, very interesting thoughts. And his heart is absolutely in the right place to try to help patients. So I wanted to really have a discussion between Mani and Vincent Rajkumar about multiple myeloma trials and so on. But I also wanted to bring a flavor uh, from a patient opinion, a patient advocate. Uh, Cindy Chmielewski, who goes on Twitter by at myeloma teacher, is a myeloma patient. She's had myeloma for over a decade. And I wanted to bring her views on multiple myeloma and how clinical trials affect patients and families and so on. I promise you, you're going to enjoy this roundtable discussion. This is great. And we are going to mention, you know, this guy, he's called Rafael Fonseca. Uh, later on in the show. So Rafael, if you're listening to the show, you got to tune in and stay on this show until the show ends. But before I air the show, I just want to make sure I plug the show and I ask you to find it on all podcast outlets, to rate it, to write a brief review and to recommend a friend or a colleague to the show. By doing this, you will make it easier on new listeners to find the show and to help in finding this show. It is hopefully unique. It is hopefully bringing a different perspective to you as listeners who are interested in healthcare in general and in oncology in particular. You could always visit my website at www.shadinabhan.com. You can also watch these debates and watch these podcast episodes on my YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. And of course, if you are an avid listener, do not forget to let me know that you want one of my famous podcast t-shirts, and I will mail those to you anytime you actually want. Without further ado, another myeloma discussion and debates with Dr. Mohideen Rajkumar and a patient representative, 
Cindy Chimeluski. All right, folks. Well, it's healthcare unfiltered again. And today we have a panel. I mean, based on your feedback, you like these panels, you like these discussions, you like these debates. And as long as they're friendly, civil, and as long at the end, the goal of this is to help listeners and help patients and help families and help the people that are really ultimate stakeholders. We're all rowing in the same direction. And for this, we do actually have a patient advocate and a representative to hear some of the discussion that will take care between two physicians that, uh, well, one has been on the show so many times because I love having him on the show. And the other one is a newbie. He's just coming for the first time on Healthcare Unfiltered. And if he doesn't mess up, I'll invite him again. If he messes up, oh, God help you. All right, so let's start with uh, uh, Cynthia. Would you mind just introducing yourself and, and tell listeners who you are, what you do, and, and what got you to where you do what you do currently? Well, my, my name is Cindy Shemaleski, and I'm a retired fifth grade teacher, and I've been living with multiple myeloma since 2008. And over time, I became interested in research advocacy, and now I am an advocate in the myeloma community. I serve on the NCI Myeloma Steering Committee. I'm part of one of the scores at Mayo Clinic and IRBs, and yeah, I, I guess I'm kind of a science geek at heart, so uh, I, I, I love attending science meetings and listening to all the exciting things that are happening. And you've been with myeloma since 2008, so I, I, thanks to science, you continue to do very well, and I wish, I, I hope that you will continue to do well for, for many decades to come. Exactly. Um, Vincent. Chatty, uh, I'm, uh, I've been on your show. Thanks for having me again. Uh, I'm a hematologist-oncologist. I practice mainly, mainly in the field of myeloma. I do uh, all three clinical practice research as well as educational um, you know stuff the three shields that we talk about and um, uh, in in the research area i have worked a lot on clinical trials phase one two and three so i'm happy to answer any questions and and of course it's a complicated area and it's not very easy to uh, to address in in social media as you've commented many times so this is a good forum Yes, and thanks, Vincent, for, for, for doing this, really. I know, I know how everybody is, is really super busy, so I appreciate it. And you also do, uh, you're a physician scientist. You also have a lab, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, I have been funded by the NIH since 99. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to make sure that folks at least uh, understand the scope of, of what you're doing, and which is the science, the research, the translational, and, and, and so on. Uh, Mani. Yeah, thank you for having me here. It's an honor to share a platform with, with you and Dr. Rajkumar. It's a little intimidating, I must admit. Uh, so I uh, finished fellowship in 2021, and uh, my focus is on multiple myeloma. So I treat and research multiple myeloma um, at the Huntsman Cancer Institute. Um, and this is a topic that uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about. I don't have a lot of experience. It's something I want to gain experience in. So I hope to learn a lot from today and be able to share um, my perspective as well. So thank you for having me here. And look, Manny, you're you're basically the the future as you're just starting your uh, 
career. So it's, it is important because I honestly, um, you know, I, I'm not joking about this. I always think that however we do education now, it's going to affect us as we get sick. I mean, look, everybody's going to get sick at some point. So I am very vested in the education and so on. Okay. So the way to, to start this, I, I, wanna, I want us to agree on few things. Okay. Number one, um, we can't answer every single question in oncology in general and in multiple myeloma in particular with a prospective randomized control trial. Can the three of you agree to that? Yes. I agree. I agree. So then what do we do? So, so how do we... Um, I'll, I'll start with asking you, Mani, um, if you can do that with a prospective randomized trial, and how, do, how would you approach... If you have a question that you're trying to answer as an investigator, how would you try to investigate that? And how do you build a clinical trial? How do you decide on a trial you're trying to ask? Totally. So as, as you have said, so, you know, the gold standard is a randomized control trial, but that doesn't work in, in many situations. Sometimes the disease you're studying is so rare um, that, you know, you just won't have enough patients for a prospective randomized control trial. In that case, perhaps a prospective trial that's, you know, a single arm or not randomized might work. Sometimes um, you have to look at, you know, registries or what, what, you know, real world data, large data sets that um, encompass patients from, you know, multiple different systems, multiple different areas. Um, so as much as possible, you know, I, I like to consider myself an idealist, uh, but, but you're right, as much as possible, we should do randomized trials, but they're definitely not um, the answer to everything. Um, and um, yeah, it's a, I think that, you know, the field of myeloma has done really, really well. And um, it's undeniable the progress that we've made. There's, there's no question that outcomes have undeniably improved, but there are obviously some areas for improvement that, that I, I hope we can discuss today. So Cynthia, from a patient perspective, do you care if it's a prospective randomized control trial? I mean, when you go and see the doctor or you see, or you've seen your doctors, how much, I mean, you're a very educated patient. You may not represent all of the patients that are seen, but what have you seen from talking to patients? Do they really care about that? How strong the level of evidence is? I think when a new medication or a, a new therapy is brought to market, you, you really want to have that as a randomized control trial because you really want to feel if what's being brought to market is definitely something that would be effective and side effects will be tolerable, things like that. But sometimes when you are looking for answers to questions that probably randomized control trials, you couldn't even get funded like, what, what therapy is better in first-line treatment for myeloma, this one or that one? Many times industries are not going to fund those trials. And for me, I would be happy if we could get a set of data that matches people, you know, step-by-step step with different characteristics of their disease, their genetics, and just traces them as the C using different types of medications, what their outcomes are. So 
You know, for the important questions, I think randomized control trials definitely need to be done. But for other questions that patients want to know answers to, I think there might be other ways to get those answers. So I'm going to ask Manny to propose a couple of things and then have Vincent uh, uh, try to have answers. So today, as you're practicing myeloma and starting your career as a researcher, scientist, as well as a clinician, what type of questions do you feel you want to have answers for to take the best care of the patients that you are seeing? And, and let's see what Vincent would actually do to try to provide answers for these questions. Totally. So that's a, that's a great question. I don't even know where to start. There's so many different areas. So let's, let, let's say high-risk myeloma, right? I think if we all agree to a definition of what high-risk myeloma is, there's, there's no ideal way to treat it. We know what we do. Um, the traditional way of doing things, you know, VRD, transplant maintenance is not enough. So I think specific trials for high risk, and I've been part of some of the recent discussion, and it's so hard to even agree on what the control arm is for, for high risk, but specific trials to, to, to address how to treat high risk myeloma is one. Specific trials on how to treat plasma cell leukemia is one. The ideal choice of, you know, induction therapy, um, where, you know, we have some trials that I would argue are answering fairly obvious questions, right? If you're comparing four versus three and your endpoint is, you know, MRD negativity, it's very obvious that, you know, four is going to be better than three. We know that already now. Um, but, you know, what is the ideal choice of, you know, induction regimen um, that, that we should use? If you're using a cord, what should that cord be? What is the safest, most effective cord? I want responsible um, you know, studies that prove surrogacy, and some are underway that prove surrogacy of, you know, MRD for overall survival to make sure that what we're doing actually helps people live longer, because we know that a lot of the new treatments we keep adding on are making myeloma more expensive, and they're worsening global disparities. You know, soon we might have like DKRD and and, you know, Silta cell upfront, but most of the world will not be able to afford it. So those are things that that bother me. And I recognize that, you know, there's limited funding and some of these questions, you know, pharma's is not gonna have the appetite to answer. Even today, like if somebody progresses on BRD, right? What is the ideal regimen at first relapse? We have so many trials that have looked at, you know, three versus two regimens for first relapse in myeloma, but we have like zero big trials that have looked at three versus three for relapsed refractory myeloma. So we don't know which is the best triplet uh, to choose. Um, and then how to manage, you know, how to manage the myeloma post-CAR-T progression. We're having a wave of multiple single arm trials um, that, are, that are popping up in that. Um, there's just so many things that's, and I know that my answer is, my question, you know, my answer to your question is pretty vast, but those are all things that I think about that uh, we, you know, we don't have solid randomized trials for. No. Good thing. So, Vincent, lots of questions, obviously, in the minds of clinicians and oncologists. The clinical trialist community and, and so on, when you can't answer everything, how do you approach all of this? How do you sit down and say, this is the question that we need to answer, we need to answer it fast, and let's just put our heads together. How do you come to the, the question you need to pick? Because you can't pick them all. I mean, we know that. Right. And I think you raised uh, a lot of important, important questions in myeloma money. And, and the, I, I will tell you at least, first of all, how I would approach it as well as how we have tried to approach it. 
The first thing to realize is a lot of people propose trials, but very few actually run the trials or can do the trial because they don't know where to start. Um, you have a grand idea that I would like to do a high-risk myeloma trial and find what is the best treatment for high-risk. But you can propose all the trials you want unless somebody is going to pay funding for it. There is no way to do it. And there we get stuck because it highlights one of the most important things that people should realize is there is very little funding outside of pharma for running randomized trials. The whole of the NCI mechanism can run maybe one or two trial stops in the whole newly diagnosed space for randomized trials. Outside of there, there is no funding. So where do you go for funds? So we can we are competing with multiple ideas and the funding is not there. And what we have been campaigning is that NIH should have a lot more funding for phase three trials. Otherwise, we are just going to be scratching the surface and we're only going to answer questions that are relevant to pharma. And there are many, many times the trial I want to do, the endpoints I want to choose is very different from what we actually end up doing. So nowadays it's a negotiation with pharma because they really need to support even NIH trials even NIH-funded trials, if Janssen says, we are not interested in giving you DARA, you can pay commercial for it. We run into problems with everybody from IRB to FDA to everything, like in terms of what is feasible, what can be built to the patient, what cannot. So that's one of the problems we face. The second problem is that is the feasibility. So for example, high-risk myeloma. I was one of the very, very first in 2010 we, we almost came to like my major disagreements and arguments with myeloma colleagues because I wanted to do a trial only for standard risk and then a trial for high risk because otherwise mixing the two meant we were, we were not going to get answers for the high risk patients. And so that's how the E1A11, which Shaji ran with VRD versus KRD, and the SWOG trial, which compared VRD ELO to uh, VRD came about. As we are developing the, that, tr those trials would not have happened had we not been very aggressive with numerous uh, people with competing interests to get the trials actually approved up and running. Um, but even when you get it up and running, you quickly realize that the number of patients that we can enroll to a high risk trial in the entire United States is not a lot because so many people don't want to go on a trial. So many people don't want to wait for the fish result to come back before they enroll a patient on a trial. So we ended up having to do only a randomized phase two. We had to pick ELO because DARA was not available to us to actually do it. So you, you could wait for five years or just do a trial. So we said, we'll do a series of trials for high-risk patients. How about we do one trial every year, the first of which will be VRD versus VRD ELO. If we saw massive benefit, then we will stop. But otherwise, we'll keep on doing these trials till we find a combination that would give us very, very high success rates. And then we'll go to phase three. Well, guess what happened? We actually couldn't accrue fast enough. So the trial took years to accrue what we thought would accrue in a year. So then, you know, the result comes out. The result is outdated by the time it comes out because ELO doesn't even work in standard risk patients in the frontline trial. So we, we end up with a problem. The third problem, so the first one is, uh, is the funding, second one, feasibility. The third one is exactly even how you define it. And I've, I've talked to 
we can say we want to do a trial in high-risk myeloma, but high-risk myeloma is a very heterogeneous entity. How you overcome high risk because of patient host factors, like high creatinine, is different from how you overcome high risk due to a high proliferative rate with a high LDH or high circulating plasma cells or a deletion 17P or a 414. The mechanism by which each of these causes high risk is different. Therefore, to think that we'll have one regimen that will overcome high risk myeloma is also naive. And so we recognize that problem, which makes feasibility even harder because you're going to pull these things. You'll find results which are not different and you'll just move on. But I do recognize it's that's what's important. The fourth one is the strategic trials. You know, how do you do trials that are not three versus four, like you said, which will answer the question, but uh, you know the answer even before you do the trial. And again, here's where the reality is that there's many, many people who have good ideas. And some people think it's more important to find the best combination. Later on, we'll find out the best sequencing. And so we have proposed trials of DKD versus DPD. I don't know if Cindy remembers it. Just to find out when somebody fails VRD, is it better to change from an image to a PI or is it better to just, you know, uh, change the image portion from LEN to uh, palmolidomide? And uh, we've also proposed trials with sequencing, you know, three drugs versus two followed by one, all of which didn't even get approved, let alone launched. So, you know, in, I would say in the last 20 years, the entire NCI portfolio of ECOG SWAG Alliance has not done a successful phase three relapse trial. Even the ones that we opened failed to accrue. So those are the realities that I struggled with. And then I have to pick which one I can, we can actually pull off and how many people would I have to please to have a trial versus saying, well, we won't have any trial at all. And I always think having a trial is better than not having any trial. So sometimes the trials we compromise on may not be the ideal, but that's what the community is willing to agree. And the community is not just industry. It's industry, NCI, patient advocates, physicians, competing colleagues, everyone. I completely agree with Dr. Rajkumar. And uh, I think the only thing that I would sort of push back on is that there are some examples in myeloma and thankfully not most trials, but there are some examples where, you know, the choice of the control arm has been, has been so egregious that in, in many situations, uh, patients would have been better served with standard of care therapy than the control arm. And we can sort of talk about it. And it's a complex reason. And I agree that most of these patients are not being enrolled in the United States. Uh, but I still don't think that that sort of, you know, justifies the the, the control arm and, and we can talk at length about it. But other than that, I completely agree. And I, I really wholeheartedly respect the efforts that Dr. Rajkumar and other, you know, pioneers in our field have done to make things better. And I completely agree that one of the ways um, to sort of address this is to have more funding for randomized trials. I well, think that's one of the pushbacks, one of the pushbacks I see on social media, and I actually, this has come up with Aaron a couple of times. You mentioned that he's not here to defend himself, but, um, but, but some of the pushbacks that I've seen is that um, advocating, well, physicians should just refuse to open the trial. Kind of like almost, you know, um, force 
the pharma to decide on the best trial, if you will. So if the pharma company comes in and says, this is the trial that we have designed, that the argument is you say, no, I'm not gonna open this, but I will open it if you do this and that. And if all of the community is unified about this, then pharma will have no choice but to form reformulate this based on what the investigators say. Uh, what do you think, Vincent, and what do you think, uh, Cindy, about Let that? Let me ask uh, Cindy to respond first, but I do have a, a good explanation Cindy, for what we could do. That? I've seen that. I've seen these tweets on social media saying, yeah. well, the investigator has a choice. They can just say no. Yeah, and you know, it, it, it's a really hard, hard decision to make because on one hand, patients need new drugs as quickly as possible in their back pockets. You know, many times, you know, with myeloma, it's a disease of relapse and remission. So there is always that group of patients that's always looking for that new drug. And I get it that sometimes getting a drug to market quickly may look at that arm not being it, the standard of care. But on the other hand, I just, as a patient, I, I can't see you offering something that's not standard of care. And, and you know, yeah, it, it just breaks my heart. Like, why would someone even suggest that, that to a patient? And I'm not as savvy as the doctors are on here. I did listen to your podcast with Dr. Raj Kumar just the other day, just to get, I could get a little bit better understanding. And maybe in some of these countries where the standard of care may not be that, I, I just don't know. I mean, like if you know that our standard of care for upfront therapy is three drugs. Why give two drugs in the control arm? I just, I, I can't understand that, you know? And mm -hmm. I, I don't know how those trials enroll or do they enroll or are they, are they trials that close because they can't enroll because- so, so there are two issues and Vincent, maybe you'll comment that. I think that just to structure the issue, one mm -hmm. issue is uh, why can't investigators just simply be stubborn and just push back and say, well, great, that's what you think. We don't agree with you. And let's have unified front. A uh, number two is the issue of the control arm. While many acknowledges for the most part, the control arms are totally acceptable and they're fine. But there are these few occasions where the control arm at least appears to be substandard to what normally patients would receive. If I'm quoting you properly, Mani. So first of all, the pushback we have to do, and I've told my colleagues that we've written about it, you cannot agree to do trials where the trial is not fair. You know, whether it's a weak control arm, an inappropriate control arm, an inappropriate endpoint, uh, uh, a trial where, um, you know, the patient population is not appropriate. There are many, many ways in which you can look at a trial and you should certainly push back. And I, I've, there are many, many trials I've called out for not being fair and should not have been done the way they were done. Sometimes what happens, Chaddy, we talked about is the trial may start out fair and then middle of the trial, you realize that the standard of care has evolved so that now suddenly the trial is no longer fair. So I'll never defend um, trials where, the, and I have chosen not to participate in them. And, and we've just 
us generally push back on these and try to tell our colleagues not to do it. And so you should be aware that, you know, I am on your side on that. Uh, I have been pushing back on, you know, when Maya trial came out, it's not like it was a unfair trial to start with, but I pointed out with Dr. Kapoor, you know, the, the, the problems of that trial when most of us were using BRD and here is their RD, which is compared to RD. And how does that even answer the question we wanted to answer? So I agree with you on that. The second question which you're asking is, you know, why does this happen and when is it okay? When is it not okay? So one thing is we to balance what Cindy mentioned about the patient's need for new drugs that are active. Somebody is making judgment calls. And for me, I make the judgment call myself. And I'm sure each investigator makes it. We look at a drug in phase one and phase two and decide whether people agree or not. This is a drug we want to have quickly. It doesn't matter whether the randomized trial takes five years. I want it now, not. That was the case with carfilzomib, daratumumab, palmalidomide. So those drugs were all approved on accelerated approval, including botezomib. I was on the very, very first botezomib trial, which was approved on a phase two trial. All of those, we would have waited years if we had said, we'll wait till the phase three comes. So when we decide a drug is absolutely needed, then you have to decide how quickly can I get the randomized trial completed because you, FDA won't give you an accelerated approval unless you've got them a phase three design in front of them and how you're planning to accrue. So we have to put both proposals together with them. We are going with the phase two, we are looking for accelerated approval. Here is the phase three that we'll do, and this is the timeline in which we are going to complete. So uh, um, in those situations, sometimes what we have picked as control arm on the surface may not look as the best one that you want. Like, for example, with bortezomib, it was dexamethasone. It was just straightforward bortezomib versus dexamethasone. Why? Because when patients at the time had failed melphalan, prednisone, transplant, there was nothing else that was approved and available. So people were either going to get no treatment, hospice care, comfort care, or some steroids. So it was appropriate to randomize bortezomib versus dex. As the trial is being done, of course, thalidomide, lenalidomide are coming along, but you couldn't realistically keep those as control arms. Same thing with, um, with uh, carfilzomib and daratumumab, they were all compared to doublets at a time when we could have done, you know, triplet regimens, even for the first line relapse, we were doing VCD, uh, we could have easily done that, but we felt it was reasonable to proceed. And in all those cases, I think a lot of lives were saved because we moved in. But then you look at drugs like Selenexor and Melflufin, and um, many of these, I had given advice to pharma panabinostat don't do these trials. These are not fair. The carfilzomib dex versus botezomib dex trial. These are not fair trials. And we should call out. And the more we call out and the more unified we are, then the, the more chances we have of success that these trials don't happen and that they modify the trial design. But always remember who's calling the shots. They are calling the shots, meaning there's a million investigators who will do the trial. So, 10 of us saying no doesn't really affect them, particularly when the 10 of us are not really accruing patients. 
the U.S. accrues 5% of patients in any phase three trial. So what standing do I have when I say I don't want to participate in a trial? They'll say fine. Yeah. Right. So it's hard too, even as a patient advocate, because we're always advocating for patients to participate in trials. A trial, you should con you should consider trials as a treatment option every step of the way. And then for me as an advocate to say, that's a bad trial, don't participate in it. That, 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 that's, you know, it's hard for patients to understand what a good trial is and then to understand something that is a bad trial and why would they even design that and why would they even ask us about it and for me to open my mouth and say something about it may be putting back enrollment in trials five years 10 years again because people hear one thing and they get scared and they may not want to try something again yeah so yeah so those are great points i do want to kind of elaborate on some of the themes that dr rajkumar discussed so you know in the us we do have an accelerated approval system right so patients in the us they will get access to drugs after a successful phase 1 trial right um and yes we have to show that you know we have we have plans for a randomized trial but i would argue that that randomized trial and i'm going to give some examples that that randomized trial should be a fair trial comparing against the standard of care, what the, what the US standard of care is, because the intent of the pharmaceutical company is to bring the drug to the US market and Western Europe. That's where they're going to get the money. The intent is not to get the drug to, you know, Eastern Europe or, you know, the Middle East or Asia, wherever they're running some of the trials. So I would argue to you that while that trial is running, and that should be a good trial, um, the U.S. patients are getting access anyways based on accelerated approval. So the owner should be to run a good trial. Now, I'm going to sort of highlight this with a few, with a few examples. So um, thankfully, this trial stopped, but, you know, the Lighthouse trial for, for Melflufen. So Melflufen was granted accelerated approval based on, you know, early phase data. And the confirmatory trial, Lighthouse, which was enrolling at about three sites in the U.S., but mostly outside the U.S., was a comparison of three drugs versus one for relapsed refractory myeloma. So the intervention arm was deratumumab, melflufen, and dexamethasone. And the control arm was deratumumab monotherapy. So even the dose of steroids, which is active against myeloma, even that is different in like, you know, one arm is getting steroids and one arm isn't. So that is, I mean, it's a quick way, right? If you look at the intent of the trial, which I love Dr. Rajkumar's concept of, you know, intent of trial, but if you look at the intent of that trial, that the intent of that trial is to get melflufen a full approval like quickly, right? That is not a patient-facing trial, and it, it was a very like egregious trial, and uh, and we wrote against it as well. But the fact is that that trial was, you know, was going to enroll in the U.S. It would have been enrolling today had we not found out about melflufen having a signal of increased mortality. So that is a very egregious example, but. A lot of our key opinion leaders who I have a lot of respect for, who've done a lot of great things for myeloma, they are the principal investigators on that trial. So these things are, are disturbing. And I mean, it shakes my faith in the system. If you look back, again, there are several examples in the myeloma literature. And Dr. Rajkumar has already pointed out how he opposed the Selinexer design. But that trial, the Boston trial, its control arm was bortezomib dex. And it started enrolling in 2017. We knew from 2015 
in a randomized trial that not let alone a triplet, even a doublet of carfilzomib dex was superior to bortezomib dex for the endpoint that the Boston study was for. So that is a pretty sad example. If you look at the keynote studies for pembrolizumab, and again, there's some you know caveats about not intended versus ineligible for transplant. But if you look at the keynote studies where they were trying to bring pembrolizumab in the front line, that was pembrolendex versus lendex, and this enrolled in the U.S. for newly diagnosed patients. And again, you know that everybody was using velcade revlimidex. Whether or not we had randomized data at that point, that's a separate debate. But the de facto standard of care in the U.S. was velcade revlimidex. And the last example is uh, if you look at the Cassiopeia study, now this did not enroll in the US, all right? We knew from 2011, when it comes to progression-free survival, that Revlimid maintenance is better than placebo. I agree that for overall survival, it took a longer period of time. Now in 2015, Janssen comes up with a study for newly diagnosed myeloma, which mainly enrolls in Europe, where after induction therapy and transplant, patients are randomized to either observation or daratumumab. And the endpoint is PFS. If the endpoint was OS, you could argue, yes, we didn't know in 2015 that you know what the OS revlimid effect is. But we knew four years ago that if you're looking at PFS, you know, PFS is better with revlimid. And this trial, right, it, it was the second part of this trial. So the first patients being randomized on this second randomization would not even have happened until 2016, 2017. The bulk of these patients were put on observation in 2017, 2018. I don't wanna assume when it ended, but I'm pretty sure it went straight into 2019 as well. And we had patients that were being observed when we knew that Revlimid maintenance prolongs life by you know two, two and a half years. So these are all, and these are all egregious examples. and. I agree that so much effort has already gone in and it takes years from a concept to getting a trial started. And Dr. Rajkumar knows this better than I do. But you know, whatever the reasons are, the system has in some examples failed our patients, right? Like if your mom was in Europe or in Asia and she was put on observation when you knew Revlimid was better and you knew that she was probably gonna live on average two and a half years less, like that would have hurt you. And who cares by the time the trial results came out, who cares if daratumumab is better than observation after you know, transplant as maintenance? So these are all examples and, and there's some more as well. Um, and I don't deny that the current system has worked really, really well. People with myeloma are living longer and longer and it's a great system, right? But this system, and if we keep following with this current system, we're gonna get more options because we're making it very easy for drugs to get approved, right? Uh, because you set the bar low, your confirmatory trial is against a, a weak arm. So you're going to get more and more options. But I don't know if getting more options is necessarily going to like get us closer to the cure, right? For the cure, you need strategic trials. And there are a few good ones being designed as well. Um, but you need to sort of know how to use the options you already have. And maybe with the options we already have, we can cure myeloma now, right? In more patients, if we, if we do it wisely. There's some really good trials looking at that. But I don't think that getting more and more options is necessarily uh, always a good thing, especially if like our, some of our patients are hurt on those control arms. So those are the things that, that I struggle with. And um, I really appreciate Dr. Rajkumar's insight. Um, and I respect him deeply for all he's done. No, no. <laughs> Thank you. And, and, you know, I'll have Cindy also reply. I, I just want to point out a couple of things. One is that 
the the trial some of the trials you mentioned are not defensible and i don't like them and i have generally told these people when they've designed it that this is not a good trial don't do it and i have not participated in these and we should continue to do that and it's good that you are highlighting these because the more you highlight other investigators will take notice and as your stature grows, you would have influence in making them think twice about being PIs on these kind of trials. And I so I applaud you for continuing to raise awareness. Uh, there are not enough people who think about these things. And the fact that you're thinking about it is great. And you should continue to do that and highlight these examples. Sometimes what happens, I'll just take, I'm not defending the trial. I don't think Cassiopeia was a fair trial, particularly, and I have pointed this out, the maintenance therapy was not right what happens is that uh, there's a finite amount of money and um, and and drug companies uh, not particularly with cassiopeia with with, uh, with some of the other trials they they cannot do two separate trials one for the us market and one for europe so they because the regulators in europe are more strict they try to plan around that and that also means that what we think of as okay for a control arm in the US is not yet, I mean, what we think is not okay for a control arm in the US is perfectly okay in Europe because they haven't approved. So for example, even in Cassiopeia, and I've asked Philippe Moreau this, who wrote the paper on um, on the Lancet article on the intent of the trial with me, um, they did not have lenalidomide approved. So for maintenance, without approval in Europe, you cannot actually get lenalidomide. Even if you think it prolongs life by two years, a drug is not considered effective until the regulators say they are. And if the regulators are not convinced, for whatever reason, the drug is simply not available to the vast, vast majority of myeloma patients in Europe who may benefit from len maintenance that we all think would benefit, but they don't have any access to it. They, they, they absolutely don't. So then a company like Janssen would say, the control arm right now is standard of care is no treatment because that's what is reimbursed. You, you want to give lenalidomide, it's not reimbursed, so they cannot give it. Uh, in many countries, they have a finite budget for lenalidomide that Poland, for example, that they told me that they have to decide, should we use this for maintenance or should we keep it for relapse? And they cannot give it even if it was approved. Um, so um, they choose that window to say, let me just do DARA single arm, uh, you know, DARA versus no maintenance at this point, because the window is there for us to get, get it. And they are also hoping that they'll see a survival benefit and they'll convince the regulators in four or five years. And that's how they do these trials. But you have to uh, understand that sometimes what we think is proven beyond a reasonable doubt is not yet proven in Europe by the regulators. And so they're still using melphalan-based regimens. When Alcione was done, I was asking Dr. Mateos, how can you possibly do a VMP trial at this point? And they were like, VMP is the standard of care. VRD we cannot give, it won't be reimbursed. And uh, VCD we cannot give. I mean, they have a limit on what is actually approved and that whole package is the only one that will be reimbursed. So they struggle with those limitations, um, but, uh, but it's not to say that someone's not taking advantage of those situations. So both are there. Um, the final point is that 
is it possible to still do the trial? Like, could they have done Dara versus Len or Dara Len versus Len? Yes, but they would have had to pay for the lenalidomide. And that means they would have had to pay $100,000 per year to sell gene per patient to get the lenalidomide, which I have done because we, I was PI of one of the Xazmep trials or both, that we had to buy the lenalidomide. That's a lot of money per patient per thing, because if, if, if uh, BMS or Celgene says we are not supporting this trial, then what do you do? Why would they support a trial which is trying to take away the market from them? Totally. I would argue that Janssen had the money to do it, no matter, because you know, they, <laughs> they, they make $7 billion a year from Daratumumab alone uh, nowadays. Keep, uh, keep I, highlighting. I think it's important to keep <laughs> highlighting because then they would think maybe we should spend the money like, you know, like uh, Takeda did. So. And, yeah, and I, and I really appreciate you saying that, Dr. Rajkumar. And I do think there's hope, right? And I, maybe I'm being presumptuous, but I'll give you an example. So we found out that uh, there was a, the Sartario farm was going to do a randomized trial in which they were going to compare Selenexer Pomdex versus Pomdex, all right? And then we, uh, you know, we wrote a few papers about the about control arms, and we, you know, we put a lot of pressure on this. And I don't know whether it's me. I don't want to be presumptuous and arrogant. But a few months later, at an updated presentation, we found out that the control arm has now been changed. It's no longer Pomdex. It's Elo Pomdex, which is, you know, I mean, it's it's a step up. You can argue how big a step up it is, but it's now at least a three versus three trial. And I would like to think that some of our advocacy and some of our you know, the pressure we put might have played a role. So I do think that um, that it, it's encouraging that perhaps, you know, us putting some, raising some more awareness about this might even lead to change. And I know that Jansen listens to us. I know that when I talk about these things, I, I they reach out to me. So I know that they're listening to us. And I would argue that they have enough money and resources to support a better control arm because they, and I, I agree with you that it wasn't approved in Europe, but they knew at the time that, when the study started enrolling, that for the endpoint that they're looking at, Revlimid was already superior. Um, so that that is one fact that Janssen knew, and I agree with you, it's a lot more complicated. I do think, and, and you also briefly highlighted this, Dr. Rajkumar, that um, there, there's a lot of global disparities, right? And I do think that sometimes pharmaceutical companies end up using those disparities to their advantages because there is such a big discrepancy in the standard of care in different settings, they know that they can run a trial easier, get away with the poorer control arm, get a result quicker and cheaper. And unfortunately, the intent of the trial remains to get the drug to US market. We have a paper in peer review where we've looked at where global myeloma trials enroll. And um, you know the, the low income countries where, where they do enroll, they don't get approval. Like, you know, so they'll enroll in those countries, but they're not going to get the drug approved there. And the, it, even if it even if it is approved, it's going to be so beyond the reach of the patients there. Um, so I don't think we're going to solve these answers, but I'm I'm glad that we're bringing awareness to these problems. Cindy, thoughts? My mind's racing. I mean, every time I hear people talking, I'm just getting more and more information. It's just like a big sponge, and you know, I just. I, I agree that I think pharmaceutical companies are willing to listen to us, but we need to be loud. I mean, more and more I'm seeing over the years, I've been asked my opinion on some of the trial designs. And when I'm asked my opinion, I say exactly 
what I feel that your comparative arm has to be equal. And, and, I, and I've seen some of the companies take that into stride. But, you know, I, I just, the disparities across, I, I, I'm, I'm having a hard time. There's so much that we're talking about that I'm having a hard time to put it in to words. I just remember the first time I went to ASH and I'm hearing like mouthful melphalan and thalidomide and I'm thinking why are they talking about this this is 2010 and then I realized that you know in Europe the access to the drugs aren't the same as here and that was just a big eye opener to me and I I just think we as advocates and as doctors and uh, and even as pharmaceutical companies need to fight for the people who aren't there to fight for themselves and to make oh, sure. I, mean, I, I think, I think though, look, I mean, at the end of the day though, pharmaceutical companies don't, I mean, they are funding the trial and their fiduciary responsibilities, I, I hate to say it, is not social justice. It is to act to their shareholders and that's really how they get compensated. Uh, I think disparities do exist everywhere in the U.S. and outside the U.S., but uh, as much as we all would like them to be resolved, ultimately, the company is going to make money if the stock price goes up and the shareholders make money, and that's really how they recoup the, the profit. So I don't know if we're going to resolve this, and I don't think, you know, as much as it's not we're all in this together. I mean, this is what I'd like. It's just, I think that's a nice slogan, but but I guess I want to try to understand a little bit more if there is a clinical trial that is ongoing. And as this clinical trial is ongoing, another study shows that the control arm of that clinical trial is no longer valid. This is also another question that comes in on social media. The assumption is, is well, great. Now we have a different control arm stop the trial or amend the trial or change the control arm. Why can't we do this? I probably there are threads after threads of this and, and Aaron is not here to mention this, but he has said that many times as well. I think Mani, you probably also said that. Do you wanna, Mani, outline the problem here that you have been vocal about? And then I'd like to hear what Cindy and Vincent respond to that. Right, so I will start by saying that Dr. Rajkumar probably has a better grasp on, on the solution to this problem and the problem itself. But the problem that we have repeatedly highlighted um, is that often during the course of a trial, another study will come out that will show that the control arm of that trial is clearly inferior for the endpoint that that trial is trying to assess. And we've shown that almost always, at least in myeloma, um, the trial continues. Um, and I'm not saying that the trial has to stop, but I do think that this is something that we need to raise awareness for. And um, I think that honestly, like I think in full disclosure, like especially if it's a patient in the US, the patient in the US needs, it's, it's ethics, right? When you're talking, when you're consenting a patient for a clinical trial, you have to talk about what the alternatives are. And you do have to sort of highlight that the alternatives, the standard of care alternative may be better. Now I do recognize, and Dr. Rajkumar can attest to this much better than I can, there's a lot of thought process, there's a lot of paperwork, there's a lot of negotiation, there's a lot of funding. There are years of effort that have led the trial to that point. And if the trial has now completed 70% of enrollment and you're going to stop that, you're going to have to do an entire power calculation again. You're going to have to like go through the entire process again. And 
you by the end like you 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 may not even get an answer and sometimes an answer um, as dr rajkumar responded out is better than no answer so i recognize that in the real world um it's it's very very messy and our systems are not nimble right like we don't have a nimble quick way to change our trial um and and make the control arm better like there's this process and dr rajkumar again will attest to this better than i can will take such a long time um and all the effort that you've done so far will may even go go to vain and it's years of effort right so this is a very very messy complicated thing i think that's why the examples that i highlighted earlier were examples where the trial was known to be inferior at the time of initiation because i recognize that once it happens during it's it's very messy what i would say is that if at least if you're enrolling a patient in the us and maybe investigators do this it's your moral responsibility to sort of tell them that the standard of care treatment might be might be better than uh, what your control arm will be if you get assigned to the control arm and you're helping humanity you're helping science by getting you know by participating in this trial but you may be getting slightly inferior treatment and you could argue that it may not be extremely inferior treatment and you can you can go about the specifics and the patient may still choose to enroll but i would argue that at least in the us you need to be very honest with your patient if you run into this situation Vincent, thoughts on that, and then I'll take Cindy's opinion from a patient perspective. No, totally agree. I mean, if there are, if there is a trial where this currently available, legally available standard of care is better than the control arm would offer, uh, and you learn that somewhere during the trial, right in the middle of the trial, you have to make that clear, and that's why. in every irb approval that i do and i'm doing irb renewals even for trials that enrolled years ago every single year you have to answer that question has there anything appeared in the literature which provides you with any information on the benefits or the risks in patient getting this trial you have to let you have to tell the irb that so if the trial if during the trial something comes out you have to say that and i have said that many times i remember in in previous uh, years uh, and then the irb will decide for you usually you will have a justification uh, that you know we still think the trial should continue or something like that for whatever reason most of the time the reason is that the control arm is actually not available like you know many of these trials are done in multiple countries so whatever change that you think happened is still not legally available to the patients in that country so even if you say uh, it will apply only to the, the you will change the consent form language but it realistically won't have an impact except in countries where they have access to that therapy sometimes what happens is people don't agree on the trial that said something changed so for example when we were doing the high dose versus low dose dex trial and we found that at just one year we were losing 13% of patients with myeloma in the high dose arm and only 4% in the low dose arm just by the dose of dex and um my initial feeling was boy i think all of the trials that are running in all of the countries in the world should change to low dose dex because it's such a simple alteration and it reduces the risk of dvt it reduces the risk of pneumonia it reduces the chances of dying um but for many many years investigators were genuinely not convinced about the trial so what they say is well i don't believe you 
your trial, uh, it must be only the people over the age of 65 who died more. It must be uh, something about the way ECOG did the trial. Uh, maybe you guys didn't do the prophylaxis correctly. Something that it's not any ulterior motive that they have this trial running or something like that. They themselves may not even have the tri any trial that's there, but for many, many years, they were not convinced that that trial result actually applied outside of the trial in which it was done, Great. the RD versus RD. So uh, that's the second reason why change doesn't happen, not just that it's too difficult, but it's actually not convincing to some other people who are who think that they are equally good experts and they can make the same judgment calls. So, but on principle, I agree with you that when a material change happens, that affects the trial you're doing, you have to disclose to the patient, even if it means that saying that, hey, we think that you may even have better trial treat outcome outside of the trial. So you may wish to discontinue the trial or, and we have to consent all the patients and, you know, re-consent all the patients. Cindy? I, I kind of agree with the fact that if something changes while the trial is on, I, I, I wish you could change it. I don't understand the finance behind it and the statistics behind it, you know, all that I don't understand. As a patient, I would say, just put the new standard of care in, but I guess it's it's not that easy, you know, maybe there's a new way we could start designing trials. I, I, I don't know, I, I'm hearing things about platform trials and different types of trials. I don't know if that, that trial design from the very beginning would help. But at least I think if that standard of care seems to change, and even if not everyone is convinced that it's a standard of care, I, I think you need to first reconsent the patients that are already on the trial. Let them know that this is a possibility and have a talking with them. And then let those patients make that decision like, should I or should I not stay on the trial? They may be having a very good response and they may be very happy to stay on that trial, but they do need to know that this is no longer the standard of care. And I think for the newly, the people you're enrolling, you have to tell those people. And, you know, and it's so interesting to me because I, I really, until this conversation happened now, I really didn't understand that sometimes that the trials that we're enrolling in that I'm looking over are actually being enrolled in another country where the standard of care may be a little bit different. So that's a whole new, you know, ball game to think of like, but yeah, I just, I mean, I'm just learning so, today. So, so look, as a listener, um, Whenever I hear the term standard of care, I am assuming that anything short of that is a deviation and is wrong. And that is rarely the case, honestly, in oncology. I mean, I think there are certain situations that clearly, for example, you have to add rituxan to chemotherapy in CD19, CA20 positive lymphoid malignancies. If you don't do that for, for, for um, non-medical reasons such as allergy and so on, you're deviating from standard of care. But myeloma, and I'm not an expert in myeloma, but myeloma seems to me a field that is, there are so many standards of care. As an observer, it is very difficult for me to um, 
Like the only thing I would say that would be wrong, right? Wrong in frontline therapy is to treat somebody with single agent. I think we know that combination therapy is better than single agent therapy. It's hard for me. I don't think the field has agreed on everything that is standard of care where we can tell something is wrong. The other thing that Manny mentioned, which I think is really interesting, is sometimes even though that there's a new, new standard of care that came in a trial, theoretically, it may not necessarily be that much better than the control arm. It's a new standard, but it may not be that much better. And the patient might still choose to stay on the control arm for other reasons, right? Maybe the cost. If you go off the trial, you're going to have to pay more out-of-pocket costs. There are other reasons why a patient might choose. And I think that's a nuance, but it's so important money that you brought up. But it seems to me that everybody is agreeable, but at least you need to have that frank discussion with the patient and say, look, this trial enrolling in Japan just came out. We believe that this changes the standard of care, but let's talk about what the, how this applies to you. Uh, to me, I, and once again, I'm not a doctor and I'm not quite sure if I'm going to word this correctly, but the standard of care may be for one patient may be different from another, depending on their disease type, how aggressive it is, um, how frail they are. So, you know, sometimes that standard of care is just a general term for an entire population, but I would like to know what that standard of care for me is. And I think that's a whole other conversation, you know, is maintenance therapy a standard of care for me, you know? That, but, that's, a, that's a nuance, right? And I, exactly yeah. what you're saying. I mean, standard of care change for a population, but to you, that still remains the better therapy and your doctor knows maybe the standard of care now applies a new agent that your doctor doesn't think you could tolerate because of side effects. So it doesn't really apply to you, but that conversation is important. Vincent, you're going to say something. Well, uh, two things I was going to say. So it's easier to look at the concrete example. Like for example, with the Maya trial, when they did uh, Dara Lendex versus Lendex, um, it, it is true, even now VRD is not approved from a, if you were, if you use approval as a benchmark, then it's VRD is still not standard of care in the US. But we were already using VRD as the standard of care based on um, phase one, phase two trials, and then subsequently the phase three SWOG trial. Um, let's say that standard of care changed in the middle. It it still affects uh, how the trial is interpreted, even if the trial proceeds. Once the trial results come out, it doesn't immediately mean the DARA RD is now the standard of care, either because it's uh, neither because it showed survival benefit or PFS benefit, nor because somehow it got FDA approval. The fact is, it is one other option to newly diagnose myeloma to BRD. Um, so, and that's because by the time the trial was completed, most of us were using a triplet and ideally we need to know which of these two triplets is better. Since the cost is different, the duration of therapy is different, the side effect profile is different, it's hard to conclude. So people have to keep in mind that, um, that the standard of care changing in the middle of the trial 
even if it doesn't affect whether you do the trial on finish it or not it'll still affect the interpretation and the interpretation has to be based on what physicians think not based on what is approved so for example what is approved might be bortezomib twice a week but clinicians think once a week is the standard of care because that gives you less neuropathy so if you keep doing trials against twice a week bortezomib then you might be okay from a regulatory standpoint but that's not what physicians are doing in practice since we have other data by which we have concluded that that a different approach is better so it really should satisfy your own conscience as a clinician when you're presenting the trial to a patient or whether you're presenting standard of care treatment to a patient to tell them this is what i think is in your best interest and um, whether the trial whether those regimens are approved or not and you know uh, that, that's that's a separate issue altogether the the second point i want to make is a lot of times i in all these complicating situations we are all making judgment calls and that's why you might find my answers not very congruent because there are drugs whenever a new drug comes i am already making a judgment call ahead of time based on whatever little data that we have on phase one and two is this a drug that I would like to have in my armamentarium for myeloma? So all of the bispecifics, all of the CAR-T trial, uh, CAR-T products, the Siltacel, Idacel, the four, five, six bispecifics that have shown activity, I feel like all of them need to be approved as quickly as possible because having them for our patients is more important than waiting for a phase three for all of those trials. So I'm, I would be pushing for accelerated approval and a good phase three for each of those. On the other hand, for drugs like melfluorin, Selenexor, Panabinostat, Borinostat, etc., I had always said like, these are drugs, but I'm not really convinced it's, it works. It's serving an important unmet need or that it's something that we have to have at the end of a phase two. So I'd rather wait for phase three. So that judgment call I'm making, so it look like I'm not very consistent because for some drugs I'm okay with, yeah, yeah, let's just go for quick approval. And for other drugs, I'm not. And what we are doing privately is each of us is assessing the risk of a type one error and a type two error and a risk benefit judgment call and we're making it. Where what happens money is that there are some physicians who are on one end, like for really, really good drugs, I'm willing to waver from my principle of the phase three randomized trial is the gospel. And, and then there are some other people who are, who are actually sincerely believing Selenexor is a great drug. We should have it available. And uh, where they stand on that spectrum is where you might find people supporting trials that are not optimal or supporting accelerated for approval for drugs that you and I think are not good enough. And when you recognize that it's easier, but then it shouldn't take away from the fact that you try to convince your peers that, hey, please don't do this. This is not good. This is not a trial type of drug that we would want to relax our rules. We have to have a clear stance. And that's what we did in the last thing we have to have a foundation that phase three randomized trials with a really good endpoint superiority, that's what we need. That's what we are looking for. And we may deviate from it depending on 
a risk benefit judgment call that we are making since there are patients waiting and you don't want to delay therapy by years for puristic reasons either. So it's a tension and where you stand on that spectrum would affect how liberal or conservative you are in your approach. So what, I mean, in a short time, because we've been actually going on for an hour right now, which is, I mean, we could go this for like five hours. My God, it's a lot of stuff. But what, what other things, money you have in mind, for example, that you feel bring into the floor would actually help uh, uh, mitigate some of the, I guess, the, 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 the disagreements? Mitigate the disagreements. I feel like there's no easy way to mitigate these disagreements because they're very, they're very complex issues. And as Dr. Rajkumar pointed out, people are can be at opposite ends of the spectrum. I think recognizing that it is a problem is the first thing. And there are very few people, in my opinion, that actually speak out about this problem. It's a you know, Dr. Rajkumar is an exception, but. I can, I'm hard pressed to think of other prominent clinical trialists who, who speak out about this problem. And, and Dr. Rajkumar may, uh, may agree with me. And often it's because, um, you know, like you want to be seen as pro-industry, like you want to be seen as, you know, you want to attract good trials to your institution. You want to be the PI for your next trial. Those are all good incentives. I'm not doubting the morality of anybody involved, but the reality is, is that there are very few people who, um, who go out there and say that this is a problem. I, I honestly, within the field of myeloma, I'm hard pressed to think of people other than Dr. Rajkumar who are prominent clinical trialists who speak out about this problem. A lot of the people who speak out about this problem are not even clinical trialists. Like they uh, have less foot in the game. So recognizing it is a problem and putting some pressure on pharma. Uh, and I think that's, that's very important. We don't even recognize that it's a problem yet. So I'm going to propose a topic that's going to be the end of the conversation because you brought it up and then we glanced over it. MRD uh, is a topic in, in multiple myeloma that is very hotly debated topic and so on. And there are people out there that says MRD is nonsense. In other words, we know that if you're MRD positive, you're going to progress faster. Like we know that, but that doesn't mean you need to do any treatment with MRD positivity, nor does it mean that um, uh, if you're MRD positive, you are gonna have better survival and so on. What is the issue money for you as a junior investigators who are looking forward about MRD and maybe let's try to get clarification from Vincent about how uh, uh, the field is viewing MRD and then we'll hear a patient perspective. That would be the last topic for this conversation. Oh, that, that's a great question. So I am very excited about some aspects of MRD and I think a lot of aspects of MRD are really hyped up. So what am I excited about? So as of today, most of myeloma is treated the same, whether you respond beautifully or whether you respond a little bit, you know, you'll get the same type of treatment. MRD allows for individualization of treatment if done in a correct fashion with a randomized trial supporting it. So if you're a deep responder, and MRD is a really good way to assess response, I do not doubt that. If you're a deep responder, you could design a trial where you get less therapy. And if you're not a deep responder, you could design trial where you either continue the same therapy or you prolong therapy. That is a very responsible, a very exciting use of MRD. And we have trials that are looking at adjusting maintenance therapy, you know, the SWOG-1803 dramatic trial. And I, I love that idea. I wholeheartedly, enthusiastically endorse patients on that. So MRD as a way to adapt and individualize treatment is amazing. It's exciting. 
The tricky part about MRD is that if you make MRD the sole goal of treatment, like it's, it's, it's your sole goal now to like drive patients to MRD negativity, there are a few issues here. You don't know, and you won't know for a while actually, if that makes people live longer. You do know it's going to be a lot more expensive. You do know that there will probably be uh, more toxicity with that approach. The other counterpart of that is not all MRD positivity is the same. And Dr. Raj Kumar has published, you know, this paper of, uh, you know, the long-lasting uh, responders to transplant. I'm just going to use that as an example. You know, people who respond exceptionally well to transplant, where a decade or more passes and they're still in remission. Some of them are MRD positive, and some of those patients would be really hurt by heavy-handed approach approaches to drive them into MRD negativity. The third, so the other issue is that MRD is not yet an established surrogate for overall survival. And it's a tough bar to cross. And if MRD becomes a surrogate for PFS, even that doesn't mean necessarily that it's a surrogate for OS. Even the PFS OS surrogacy in myeloma, and we'll hopefully have a paper coming on this soon. It's, it can be a little tricky. I'm not proposing that we make OS the endpoint for newly diagnosed, but I all I ask for is that there's a long way, there's a long bridge between you know, MRD negativity and overall survival, and we should recognize it and not hype it up beyond um, what we know today about MRD. So individualizing treatment, great. Sole goal of treatment, I am very wary about it. Some will be overtreated by that approach and there'll be a lot more toxicity. So that, those are my thoughts on MRD. Vincent? So um, great, great analysis, Mami. And um, MRD now is the CR of the old days. And uh, I remember still, and I think I should check now, the Myeloma Beacon, I wrote a, uh, a, a blog post like probably 15, 20 years ago on why what is the meaning of CR? Because patients tell me, doc, I'm not in CR, what's going to happen to me? And I wrote it for them. And it's still, after so many years, 15 years, it's still the most read or the most whatever commented, uh, most read, I think. It's still among the most read post one or two ranking because everyone wants to know the answer. When MRD came up, I told people like, hey, this is going to be even more serious than CR problem because a lot more patients are going to be MRD positive. And you don't want them to think that they are failing in some way the therapy and that they have to escalate therapy. You're going to put more people at risk. So if you're going to do that, you better have a lot more proof than you have right now. And we've been writing about it over and over again. I write even just last week, I completed the American Journal of Hematology. I do an annual update. I repeatedly said MRD as a goal of therapy is not proven. That's it. Some people may, may say, even if it's not proven, I'll take the risk and try to get to MRD negative because my patient is young and is high risk and deletion 17P. But they're going in eyes open that they are going above the data, what the data would show. But default is right. It is not proven as a goal of therapy and there is a risk of over-treatment um, and even harm if you try to use that as a goal of therapy. For surrogacy, a lot of us do recognize um, to show it's a surrogate for PFS or OS, you need a lot more than just a few papers saying MRD is a prognostic factor. So we are doing the I-squared team. And uh, what we are running into is, you know, there are only two or three 
endpoints that have been accepted by the FDA as a surrogate endpoint, a true surrogate endpoint in oncology. That's, I think, in Hodgkin's lymphoma, adjuvant uh, 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 colon, and, and I think diffuse large B-cell or follicular lymphoma, one of them. The problem is you need 10 randomized controlled trials where the delta in the MRD and the delta in the survival correlate. And we don't have data on that. After so many years, we don't have enough trials with the overall survival endpoint to actually do that. So I don't know, I don't think the FDA is going to accept what we currently have. They're evaluating. We have PFS data, but not OS. So you're right. Um, on the other hand, the, the, the reason to push the MRD surrogacy for trials as an endpoint is that you may not need to wait so many years for a drug approval or a regimen approval. So those are the tensions that people are bat battling. But I don't think, I think most uh, myeloma experts are aware that it's not yet proven as a surrogate endpoint, a marker of cure or as a marker of goal of therapy. It is a good prognostic marker. The other point you make, I will tell you, I, I, I thank you very much for your high regard for me and your nice kind words, Mani, and I'm sure that you are doing uh, exactly the same. And, and But you said something, skin in the game. What you want is people with skin in the game to speak up. Uh, and that's the hard thing because they have skin in the game. And so they they have a lot to lose. I will tell you that a lot of the colleagues who don't seem to be vocal on this issue are vocal in private. Mm -hmm. I have been at these meetings and Cindy has been where we absolutely tell the drug company, do not do this stuff. And there are changes made, but they may not vocally say it outside um, for whatever reason on social media or anything else, but they are vocal. And I think the more people like you raise this issue and um, make them also aware, hey, you, it, it takes time to get to the level of trust where you could say something and pharma would listen. And um, people are trying to get to that level where they are doing it. But I will tell you, I'm not defending all my colleagues or anything, but, but truly, I've seen people go at pharma and tell them, please change the design of the trial. This is not acceptable and try their very, very best. Even if they are not speaking out, they say the same points you make um, in private, at least. I think in today, today's age, you just need more more followers when Pharma will listen. <laughs> but, uh, Thank you for that clarification because I, I you know, I, I have great respect for everybody. This is by no means an, a direct personal uh, attack at anybody. And everybody's doing great. No, no. And I think no. everybody is in there with the right intentions. Uh, there's no doubt. But for, the, but for the MRD, Cindy, you're a patient and you're a patient advocate. If your doctor says, by giving you this more treatment, we are going to eradicate any clone of myeloma that we are able to see on the molecular level. So I won't be able to see that clone whatsoever on the most sophisticated and sensitive level. It is going to require a little bit more treatment. It may cause a little bit of toxicity, but there's no question that your chances of the, limb, of the myeloma coming back are going to be less than the chances of the myeloma coming back um, if I don't do that eradication. How would a patient, how would you tell patients and so on from a patient perspective, how does this resonate? There are patients that would say, 
Doc, what would you do if this were you? And there are, and it's a difficult question to answer, but there are patients who really understand that. I mean, everything I said, I presume it's scientifically correct. Uh, it may not, it may not live longer, but the chance of relapse are definitely less. Yeah, and it, it, it's really hard because once again, every patient is an individual, and I, I don't think any doctor could say that to any patient with that degree of certainty, because they don't know that person in that patient. Uh, I think they need to talk about, just like the doctors have said here, what do we know about MRD? We know that it's prognostic, but we don't know if, if you're not in MRD negativity, that you're not going to live longer. And this is a point that's really near and dear to my heart. I've been living for 13 years with multiple myeloma, I've never been in a complete remission. I've never been MRD negative. I've always had a measurable M spike. And in the very beginning, when I was hearing, first it was about, you had to be in a complete remission to live long. And I wasn't, and I was begging my doctors, like, give me more therapy, please. I want to get in the complete remission. I was feeling like a failure because I wasn't there. And I thought I wasn't going to be around much longer. And my doctors, thankfully, I had specialists who understood that my disease was just going along, you know, it was being stable. And they had to explain to me that this MRD is just in general, this is what people are saying. It's not specific to you. And same thing, you know, now with MRD testing, you know, if that doctor said it to me, I'd probably be on much more therapy. And I may never become MRD negative, even with all that therapy. And my quality of life would be really, really bad. So I think it's really dangerous for that. And what makes it more dangerous for me as a patient advocate is I know that 80% of patients are being seen by the community oncologist. And I know, although they're wonderful people and my community oncologist I go through for my maintenance therapy, I go back to my myeloma specialist to guide them. But these community oncologists, if they think about that, you need to be MRD negative to live longer and they don't know the nuance of it, they may be over-treating their patients too. So, you know, I, I think it's a wonderful measure. I, I love the idea, you know, of the master trial and some of the other trials where MRD negativity can guide whether or not you can come off a of maintenance therapy or guide whether or not we might be able to add a little bit more to your treatment because you're not responding enough. But I, I think we need to learn a lot more about MRD and and patient and just one other thing too patients don't understand and it's the same thing because I know lots of patients who are MRD negative and the minute they become MRD positive and it might be only three cells in a million they want treatment because their disease is growing back 
I mean, we're still waiting. I guess the standard is you don't start treating a patient until their M spike raises by 0.5. Is that still the standard doctors? Or I, 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 I don't know what the definition of relapse is, but you know, with MRD, you could be waiting a whole long time. I mean, but then patients are worrying. So I, I think we need to know a lot more answers before we use it as a standard for anything. And that's just my uh, two cents. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Thank you. And uh, I would say one of uh, our friends and, and colleagues, uh, Rafael, if you're listening to this, Rafael's license plate on one of his cars is uh, MRD Neg. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, Rafael, if you're listening to this, when this really uh, thing, you know, this is uh, this discussion is to you. Um, I want to finish. This has been really great, but I want to give everyone on the panel an opportunity just to whatever you want, whatever on your mind, and, uh, and we will conclude. I'm, I'm very thankful for really, um, th this is, I love this, because I think we're all rowing in the same direction. We really want to have the best that we can. I do believe that oftentimes things on social media and Twitter get pretty kind of in your face, and the people behind the tweet are not always the same as the people in real life. I honestly, that's why I've Several times I said, Twitter is not the real world. Genuinely, I believe that. I believe that sometimes it's easy to, to, to say things, 280 characters. But when we talk to each other, we realize we have more agreements than disagreements, to be honest. So with that, uh, each one will have last words. Cindy, we'll start with you. Well, I kind of agree with what we just said, that you know, it, it's hard to put everything you're thinking about on Twitter. It's the same way as when you're trying to respond. And if you're mad, you never send someone a text message because it never comes across the way you want to have it. You need to pick up that phone and have a conversation. But my message is I, I want to start thinking about designing trials in new ways. You know, maybe maybe there is a way of moving that randomized control trial to the next level. And maybe we could start thinking about that. Mani? Well, I wanted to thank you, Jali, for, for inviting me here. And I learned a lot today from Dr. Rajkumar, from you, from Cindy, her perspective was so invaluable. I think we all agree that great progress has been made in myeloma. Uh, unprecedented progress. Our patients are living longer. A lot of the treatment options we have are translating to longevity and improved quality of life. But I think we all also do agree that there could be a better way of doing things. We recognize that these problems are very complex and um, I am learning more and more each day about how complex they are. Uh, but we have to recognize that there is there are some problems and things can be better. And I hope to see some improvement uh, in my career on that. So thank you again for having me. Vincent, last word. Well, same, Chari. Thanks so much for having us here. Um, great to hear the points that Mani brought out. Amazing points. I, 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 I don't have philosophically any disagreements at all. And I have articulated the same things. And Cindy, of course, I've known for so many years. Um, thanks again for both of you for your... Uh, uh, advocacy on Twitter and other social media platforms on behalf of patients. Um, I, I do promise to do what you just said, Manni, that we have to keep the podcast that I did last week was to, uh, two weeks ago was, was to explain to people what are the competing problems and why two people can look at the same thing and come to different conclusions. 
And uh, what we're doing today is raise awareness that where even if change is difficult, we have to keep highlighting these and pointing this and encouraging other experts to do the same thing, whether it's on cost of drugs or trial design or inappropriate control arms. If we don't speak up, we won't see change happen. And you ha you do have influence um, as patient advocates, as experts. You, you have influence and you should use it. And I'm glad that you are using it. And, and so I think um, we are trying to be better and do trials in a better way. And uh, the more support we get um, from from all of our colleagues, it's going to be easier to do this. Industry also is struggling in the sense that there are many industries easy if you just think of it as an um, as an organization. But within that industry are people. There's medical affairs, there's clinical development, and they compete and they have differences of opinion. There are people there who, even if they think your idea is great and they fully want to support it and take it up they may get vetoed so it's a lot of um uh things but i think our voice certainly matters and and does carry influence well your voice has gotten now much more uh, money and if you know this just by simply coming on healthcare unfiltered i mean <laughs> but, uh, you know i mean you can uh, you and 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 cindy separately uh, send me a note so you could get the famous podcast t-shirt this is hashtag, this is i'm getting better in marketing vincent you see that like you know this is all marketing well thank you so much for being on the podcast really appreciate it. we're going to do way more of these all right everyone thanks so much for listening really appreciate you tuning in and sticking around this was a longer than usual podcast but was very helpful hopefully if you are an investigator or interested in myeloma therapies or trials you've learned a few things if you are a patient or a patient advocate you've also enjoyed listening to this podcast because there's a lot of issues that we are they're not always straightforward look i mean at the end of the day I wish we always can have black and white or right and wrong answers to everything, but the reality is we don't. So it is important to have these discussions, dialogues, and conversations. I appreciate your support. Visit my website at www.shadinabhan.com. Check out my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. And don't forget to subscribe, like, and write a brief review to the show. I appreciate your support. In reward, I will actually send you a podcast t-shirt if you are interested. I would appreciate you reaching out to me anytime that you want. You could follow me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan. And before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying from Rumi. You are not a drop in the ocean. You are the entire ocean in a drop. Until next time, take care.